Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Inside Asia podcast from the Center for Asian Democracy at the University of Louisville. This is Dave Buckley, CAD's director, and Paul Weber, endowed chair of politics, science, and religion here at UofL. I'm alone today on the interviewer side of the mic, uh, although, as you'll hear in a minute, Dr. Ashani Dasgupta isn't too far off. Um, first, thanks to the great leadership of our colleague, Tori Dahl, CAD's podcast channel is ready for the new academic year. Uh, all our episodes from last year and moving forward are accessible on the CAD website through the University of Louisville, as well as through Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Just search Center for Asian Democracy. Subscribe, review, and stay up to date on future content. We are joined today by Dr. Ashani Dasgupta, Andrew W. Mellon Hill's postdoctoral fellow in anthropology at Case Western Reserve University. Ashani is also, as pod listeners will know very well, the recently concluded postdoctoral fellow at the Center for Asian Democracy here at UofL. Um, I was going to call her recently departed, but that just didn't sound quite right. Uh, we were thrilled to have Ashani with us here for the year, and we can't wait to see her work continue this year at Case Western. Um, I wanted to be sure to host this conversation for two reasons. First, it gives us a chance to put a bow on Ashani's year with us um, when she made a great contribution to CAD's relaunch of a lot of activities, um, both in terms of events and scholarly contributions. Uh, we literally could not have asked for a better colleague this year, and we're so grateful uh, for getting to share the year um, with her. Uh, second, and probably more importantly to listeners, Ashani joins us after having recently returned uh, from a period of fieldwork in the Tibetan community in exile in India. Um, as uh, listeners may remember, uh, Ashani joined us at the very start of her postdoc year to talk about her dissertation project that was in the process of turning into a book on the deterritorialized Tibetan nation. Um, after the COVID lockdowns um, uh, had lifted um, and travel became more feasible, Ashani returned to the field in summer of 2023 with CAD support, um, and you'll hear all about her trip in our discussion. Um, talking about the Tibetan polity gives us the chance to touch on all sorts of dynamics related to democracy in the region. Um, there's fascinating questions about the future of democratic practice and citizenship in the Tibetan community, um, both within India and elsewhere. Um, also, Tibet's unique location at the intersection of China, India, and even U.S. relations um, puts it at the center of the international relationships that are doing so much to shape democracy in the region. Um, so it's a, it's a, a crucial case in its own right, um, one that has changed in interesting ways to hear Shani talk about it, um, reflecting on her fieldwork from the summer. Um, and it's also crucial to understanding the future of democracy and rights across the, re the region. Um, with that introduction in mind, uh, without any further ado, let's get right into my conversation with Dr. Ashani Dasgupta. All righty, uh, Dr. Ashani Dasgupta, thank you for joining us from distance today. Uh, thank you very much, David. I'm I'm absolutely thrilled to be here. Uh, it's it's sad having you on the other side of a Zoom screen instead of uh, instead of here with us in Louisville. Uh, our audience got used to to having your your wise questions and calming presence uh, with us on the pod, and now they're stuck with just me asking the questions. But they get uh, another dose of you um, uh, before uh, before you go. So thanks so much for being here. Yeah, I'm 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 glad, and I'm gonna keep I'm gonna be tuned into the podcast 
So I'll be looking forward to your other episodes. Judging us, yeah, sending critical comments, telling us about all the all the ways we've gone, gone astray without you. Um, well, great. You know, I, I we want to have this conversation for a couple of reasons. Uh, first of all, because you have wrapped up your term at, at CAD and wanted to give you a kind of big picture chance to look back at your research agenda and also forward. Um, but also a little bit more specifically, um, because in just the last few months, you've had the chance um, to go back into the field um, for some field work related to your research um, on the Tibetan polity, uh, in particular uh, in exile in India. Um, so I thought maybe we could start with that. Uh, could you just give us uh, first a quick rundown of, of why you went back into the field? Who, who'd you talk to? Why was it so important that you get back out there uh, after a, a time away? Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. I, I do want to get to your question, but I also wanted to say I, it's a very interesting time to be speaking to you about, uh, you know, the Tibetan exile movement, uh, because Tibetan Democracy Day just went by on September 2nd. Uh, and uh, it's that's not even a week ago. And it was the day when the Tibetan parliament in exile, uh, which is now officially known as the Central Tibetan Administration, was inaugurated uh, 63 years ago. So there's, there was all uh, conversations about how the democracy has grown and what the future aims of the community is so it's a it's it's uh an interesting week to have this conversation what what does that week look like obviously you weren't there last week but um but you have been there for it i'm sure what does that week look like on the ground i mean mostly it's um speeches given to people uh the dalai lama made a speech and um just people wear their national clothes and there's some celebrations are done by NGOs and organizations, but mostly it's about the Tibetan parliament. So it's it's their thing. Um, but it is quite uh, it it is quite an important moment. And I think it's becoming more important. I feel like it wasn't on the map um in my earlier days, but like now, because of the significance of the community in exile and the democracy. Uh, that they have created it has become an even more important day, day to celebrate and remember so um so yeah um there were there were a few articles and all even in the indian media which is rare so it's hmm. yeah well we'll get to india that's great actually that you kind of put that on our agenda because that's definitely something that we, that i want you to talk about yeah and, um, uh, so... to the conversation yeah but maybe start us out with by just kind of a, um giving us a sense of, of of why you needed to go back into the field and uh, and what the priorities were during this time yeah absolutely so this was my first time going to dharamshala after 2018 I had gone to Bailakopi, the Tibetan settlement in South India in 2020, uh, after which COVID hit. And um, I was really grateful for the opportunity uh, to go this time, um, thanks to CAD. Uh, but firstly, it was really nice connecting with old friends, learning what is new and developing in the community. Um, I uh, a strange coincidence was I landed up staying in the same room of the same guest house I had stayed in when I had first gone to Dharamshala during my language year in 2014. So it was a good uh, sort of return to that space. Um, my teacher and his families were, were welcoming as always, and I saw many familiar faces, met some old friends. Um, but then what was really important, and I think uh, this become has become quite central in a chapter that I'm going to write, 
or rather I am writing. Uh, but then so uh, like so much has changed um, in, in the very complex of Khanki, which is um, where the Tibetan parliament is located, the resistance and the deterioralized Tibetan polity. So I'm, I'm yeah. quite excited about uh, sort of the research that I was able to do during this period. That's great. Um, you know, I know for a lot of us comparativists have been away from the field for several years now, right? So I, you know, I was only able to go back to the Philippines last summer, uh, 2022, um, and uh, and and you were back after after time away to a place that you had been deeply in, embedded in. Um, I, it's probably hard to summarize, but um, has had COVID sort of changed the patterns of life, whether it's political life or sort of social life, and and if so, kind of how did you feel that as a as a ethnographic researcher? So COVID, interestingly, uh, Dharamshala, at least McLeod Ganja and the Tibetan community remained relatively insulated from the um, violence of the of 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 COVID that had happened in in like Delhi and other places in India. Uh, part of it was also they were they're a very close knit community, so they landed up just you know closing their doors and just. Uh, following the rules and laws laid down by their their government who was very insistent on certain sorts of you know on uh paying heed to what the indian state was giving a lot of them are not um you know they're not transitional laborers or some sort uh, or um people who migrate a lot so they were able to uh stay put so they in at such a in such in this sense it wasn't very violent on the community but uh, definitely this time there was a lot of change. Uh, I did see an uptick, for instance, on uh, of addiction, which was really sad to see um, because I guess, you know, COVID has had its own thing on everyone who remained isolated during that period. Um, but I, I saw uh, quite that quite starkly. Uh, the other thing it changed was the profile of tourists, which I just spoke of. Um, a lot of European tourists have still not started coming to India as um, uh, in in as many as much number as they had before. Uh, I think that is going to pick up soon because his uh, the Dalai Lama is giving a lot of talks and he's been asked to give a lot of talks by his disciples from Sikuria and. Um, other place of late, especially. Um, but uh, the Indian tourists, uh, my, one of my friends who was in the tourism, uh, sort of in the entire restaurant business was telling me there was a revenge tourism by the Indians because Indians, you know, just started going, uh, just started traveling a lot. So that profile has changed and the way in which McLeod Gunn's culture has developed is also changed. So there's a little bit more of, say, Bollywood music more than spiritual stuff. I mean, it's just, it's not yet uh, such a dramatic change, but uh, there are more bars and like more <laughs> places to go and listen to music or party or drink in the nights than they were. So Sandy, yeah, not exactly the stereotype of kind of monastic society. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So, um, 
Yeah, I mean, maybe you could give us a, a little bit of a broader, I mean, you already said this is going to link on to the end of the book manuscript. Mm -hmm. um, I'm curious, you know, over the course of the year, we talked with you on the very first episode of the kind of relaunched pod back in probably August or September of, of 2022 about the, the book project. Um, and you've had about a year now to, to sort of wrestle with parts of it um, and also go to, to go back into the field and think about how this period will contribute to the overall project. How are you thinking about it differently now? Um, or how, do, how does the book um, and its kind of place in understanding recent uh, political developments there, uh, how has it changed over the course of the last year? Yeah, I, actually, this is, um, I think I'm very excited about this trip and the chapter and the way in the, which the book has come together. So I've been able to do a lot of work on my book over the year at CAD, and I, I think it should it should first draft should be ready by December. Um, fingers crossed. For all the uh, publishers listening out there, that's right. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's why I said fingers crossed. <laughs> um, this this fieldwork trip was particularly important because um, throughout my years in the field, I sort of had a feeling of how much strength there was in the concept of impermanence. Um, and how it kind of linked together, um, how it kind of fell central to my concept of a processual and evolving deterritorialized nation. Um, so this time, um, impermanence, obviously, as as you know, as the, our listeners also probably know, is an epistemological category in Buddhism. Um, but also what is interesting it is, is it is deployed in the Tibetan understanding, creation, continuation, and evolution of their exile nation. Um, so for the Tibetan Buddhist, impermanence does not necessarily mean an end or a death or a dissolution, but it essentially means a lack of an absolute self or a lack of an essence, um, which is also means that change transformation is is key. Uh, impermanence is transformation. Um, that's also sort of the concept, connection to the concept of reincarnation, uh, the death of one form and the transformation into a very different other form. And uh, so this journey, I think, uh, and I think it ties together throughout my um, book, uh, this journey showed me that the deterritorialized nation is a reincarnation of sort of the nation of Tibet. So not at all in similar in essence or form, but transforming and persisting. Uh, and, and that is what I am trying to capture in my last chapter and sort of tie it, tie the whole thing together. And yeah, I mean, I've always thought that that was such an interesting part of the project because nationalists, of course, usually like to pretend anyway that the nation is very permanent, right? Nationalists aren't usually, uh, at least openly, fond of uh impermanence or, or change maybe rebirth you know some nationalists are okay are okay with that yeah. but that's usually in a quite kind of reactionary way right rebirth going back to a kind of uh, pure historical version of the nation or something like that yeah. um, I mean as, as you're developing the project what do you think this sort of field site and in, in this case of Tibetan deterritorialized uh, nationhood has to sort of teach us more broadly about the category of the nation um, and kind of political belonging in the current uh, moment, politically and economically and culturally that we're kind of inhabiting? Um, I especially think it's important given um, the 
so my uh, i think this uh, this form itself and of course there are um there are pitfalls to it and there are there are many things about the precarity and uh, internal tensions that a, a precar that a sort of vulnerable community experiences that can be destructive but i also feel like there is some sort of an emancipatory potential in this um in this formation and partly particularly because it is so capable of transforming its politics its configurations its rules uh it has to to survive you know in a geopolitical landscape where nation states are competing and you have to like sort of uh, slide between each of these nation states and their competing agendas um it is also i feel it's also so important because now the number of people who are refugees has of, of course dramatically increased 35 million people are refugees but also migrants and so how does the political future look for us outside of the nation state model where people are still wedded to um ideas of nationalism or ideas of national belonging instead of nationalism uh, in some way or the other um, so yeah yeah um i mean i'm wondering one of the the real changes that uh, at least at some point in the future um the tibetan polity will be facing is um the the personal status of the dalai lama and I, i'm curious what you heard if if you heard things in the field about um his leadership potential transitions in leadership it's obviously a very politically sensitive topic both internally to the tibetan community and also to international players especially china and did you hear anything sort of on the ground about um how his status uh and uh, and leadership is being uh, imagined in this time yeah i guess you know there i think this tension has been going on for a while there is an anxiety in the community about uh, china trying to take over the institute um especially what they did with the pension lama so uh the determination is for the reincarnation to happen outside outside the uh, political control of china so that uh, you know what happened with the pension lama who's the second to the dalai lama or rather you know they they kind of um assist in the development of each uh, each seat as the younger dalai lama will sort of support the uh it will be supported by the older pension lama and then when the reincarnated pension lama he'll be supported by the dalai lama anyway so uh the in 19 i think 1993 uh the dalai lama recognized um a young boy as the pension lama in uh in china in tibet and he and his family were kidnapped and he they've never been heard of or seen again and a new a, a a state a state appointed pension lama was appointed in his place as the reincarnation so definitely tibetans are very scared that this will happen and the dalai lama has categorically said that he does not plan to reincarnate in tibet uh, in uh, china control in, yeah. in basically um yeah maybe we can pivot to the china relationship uh, a little bit more um in detail it's obviously been a period even since you've last been there for your field work um when uh the situation facing many national minority communities in China has deteriorated even more than than it already was um maybe first we could uh, I know you weren't in China itself on on this field trip but your sense of um uh domestically within the borders of of uh, Tibet 
um, how has the community, uh, how's the community status changed in the last sort of several years? Um, is it facing more coercion along the lines of um, some of the coercion that communities like uh, Uyghur Muslim communities are facing probably more famously recently in, in, uh, in Western parts of China? Uh, yeah, and I can actually tie this up to some of the fieldwork experience I had, right? So uh, one Even thing... Even better. Yeah. <laughs> so one thing I saw in the Dharamshala was uh, despite some, you know, disappointments and frustrations about the evolution of the political movement, uh, you know, all the conversations of the older generation that the under uh, the younger generation are not as political enough or committed as politically enough. Um, I felt that the younger generation, uh, a significant number of them remain quite uh, committed to Tibet and the cause of the Tibetan people. Uh, and I was fortunate to speak uh, to some of the new leaders. So I, I uh, met with the leaders of Students for Free Tibet and Tibetan Youth Congress, um, two key institutes, and I've worked with both of them before. Uh, they are at the forefront of the movement's demonstrative arms uh, and lead campaigns and, you know, uh, meet with political actors and also lead demonstrative campaigns um, for the Tibetan movement. Uh, so three of the campaigns that stood out particularly was, and we can talk about the first one a little more if if needed. So one was um, uh, was that they were trying to use the G20, which is um, going to happen just in another couple of days, and India is uh, in it's happening in India this time uh, as a platform to petition against human rights violation through diplomacy. Uh, so it wasn't a plan to demonstrate, but through diplomacy. Um, and the other one is a protest against Tibetan children's colonial boarding school. So China has started um, enrolling Tibetan children into a boarding school. Uh, and Tibetans are seeing this as something similar to what Canada had done to its indigenous uh, populations, you know, particularly um, coercive policies to eliminate Tibetans, uh, Tibet's distinct culture and linguistic heritage. So they've been very active on this front. And actually, they have also been able to petition the U.S. state for uh, certain or uh, make uh, pass a motion in the U.S. state to, for, to bring this under consideration. Then the other thing that they have also been protesting, and this is a big campaign, both in India and outside, is DNA collection of Tibetans. And this goes back to um, the U Uyghur, uh, you know, issues uh, in Xinjiang, where, where a similar process had been done to monitor and surveillance the in uh, individual uh, Uyghurs. And so... They have been protesting the DNA collection. Uh, they also protested in front of the Thermo Fisher office in the United States, which is helping uh, China to record and keep these Tibetan DNAs. Um, so the so things aren't. It's there is of course development. Like there is development everywhere as we go through uh, the years in the twenty first century. But there is definitely human rights violation is still pretty much going on. Uh, so it's, yeah. it's and Tibetans are fighting for it in whatever way that they can. I, I assume that the local activists are also very aware of um, both protests internationally about the treatment of Uyghur communities, and but also maybe I'm curious are they are they sensitive to local protest dynamics in China? I mean, we we had fairly unprecedented protests in China in the last year, for instance, related to COVID protests 
or sorry, COVID lockdowns in the country and and um, uh, deaths that came up about as a result of that. Um, is there sort of a, a domestic what the domestic political analysis of the Chinese situation? Um, is, is that shaping kind of activist strategy among some of the Tibetan networks that you're talking to? Um, so definitely they joined in on the, on making, um, amplifying the uh, protests in China during COVID, the blank paper protests. They did amplify it by holding their own uh, campaigns in India. Um, as far as the Uyghur protests are, or generally the, the, the speaking against the violence in, in Xinjiang, uh, the Tibetans have kept out of being have kept themselves out of being very deeply involved in that because um, they are sworn to nonviolence and um, at times the Uyghur movement has been violent uh, or like parts of the Uyghur movement. So definitely they are they will say speak against the violence that the state is doing to the population, but they won't sort of consolidate and join hands with the Uyghurs liberation movement and mm -hmm. they get painted as violence. But yeah, but I, a lot of emphasis is uh, still on the domestic situation. Like they they try to put all the focus there because Tibet can get eclipsed uh, when, you know, you broaden the focus too much. The particularities of the Tibetan case can get eclipsed. And it does. I mean, it's it, people's attention also shifts <laughs> and the globe's attention shifts towards whatever was the flavor of the season. So sure. I think you just know that better than anyone else. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's um, it, it's really striking that we now have this period of increased at least competition and maybe even confrontation between the United States and China. Um that relationship obviously is very relevant to Tibet and to Tibetan activists, but it also raises the prospect of all kinds of uh, potential economic damage, but also even physical violence brought about through potential U.S.-China confrontation. I mean, it, do you get any sense that um, of how local Tibetan activists view rising U.S.-China competition? It, it might be an opportunity on the one hand, I guess, because the U.S. is even more uh, likely to to sort of call China's uh, misdeeds in, into account. But I, I would assume there's also some hesitancy given the nonviolent nature of the Tibetan movement um, about some of the uh, potential for the U.S.-China relationship to really lead to to economic violence or even physical violence um, over time. How do they how do they talk about the U.S.-China relationship uh, on the ground there these days? I mean, to be completely honest with you, uh, they I. So there wasn't a sense that they have to uh, change the texture of their movement because of this change. And I'm I'm almost sure that there's work going on in the United States where there is an effort to join hands with um, political factions that are more more uh, towards you know putting certain restrictions on uh, China, particularly in terms of human rights violation. Um, but in India, the general consensus is we have to try and get the autonomy that uh, the state the state has officially demanded uh, cultural and um, uh, autonomy, which is what uh, or the Tibetan state has officially Tibetan exile state has demanded. So that's what they are fighting for, and I don't think they want to antagonize China beyond that at this moment. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, maybe we can pivot then to the other uh, regional uh, setting of, of the Tibetan community, India, um, and, and sort of how um, this exile community and this government in exile is embedded within its own uh, broader uh, Indian context that faces all sorts of challenges um these days um you know i you track these things much more closely than i did i did notice recently that apparently uh indian prime minister narendra modi wished the dalai lama a happy birthday um and that this attracted some attention in the press uh i assume press that's sort of sympathetic to, to modi um I, how would you assess kind of how um the indian government's stance towards the tibetan community has shifted, if at all, in the last few years? So this is really interesting uh, because it, again, you know, it goes back to what role the Tibetans play in this larger geopolitical competition between nation states. Um, so the Indian state and uh, the Tibetans have have had varied and sort of complex relationship. Um, at the regional level, so at the, at the level of the state, uh, local states, state bodies, Tibetan bureaucrats and politi politicians engage with local elected leaders and sort of maintain a good relationship. Um, that's why, you know, their community has been able to grow the way it has. They have been able to get more land on lease. Many Tibetans have been able to start businesses. Uh, they have also institutionalized a um, Tibetan uh, rehabilitation policy in 2014. In 2017, some Tibetans uh, born before 87 uh, got, uh, were able to pass a legal decree allowing them to become citizenship citizens in India, uh, born before 87 in India. So there has been, it's been um, a complex and each state, like the state of Karnataka, which has a significant number of Tibetan settlements, um have has had a very good relationship with the community and so on and so forth and even uh, himachal pradesh uh you know dharamshala has become the second capital of himachal pradesh because of the sort of um uh, sort of revenue it generates as uh, a, a space uh so uh, that's at the local front now at the uh, now, in the in the public posturing is what what I'm, I'm using here. Uh, there are many variations, you know. While Modi might wish his whole Nina's happy birthday, uh, the Indian state will also assure that there is no protest during the G20, um, or for that matter, uh, about in 2018, uh, the Tibetans had planned a very significant celebration um, to sort of thank India for 60 years in exile. So they wanted to also commemorate their 60 years of Tibetan exile. Um, but um, but that was completely throttled. Like Indian politicians were advised not to go for it and the venue was cancelled, all of that happened. So a lot of this is determined by the geopolitical relations between India and China. Um, sometimes they permit Tibetans to protest to show that they are a democratic nation and they don't care about China's threats and then sometimes they advise them not to protest for the sake of bilateral relations. And in many ways, Tibetans have to, um, like a lot of Tibetans are also put in jail when they don't, uh, there are activists who go rogue and don't listen to the Indian state. And we'll see if that happens during the G20. Uh, but, uh, but, uh, but largely the establishment uh, sort of does not challenge the Indian state. 
um, in demonstrative protests, especially. So it's it's a bit of a game on the public front. Sure, sure. Is there any? Um, I don't know if you've if you've sort of tracked carefully how it is that Modi talks about the Tibetan community or talks about Buddhism within modern India. I mean, um, is there? How does his treatment of that community, either rhetorically or sort of symbolically, um, compare or, contra or contrast probably with the treatment of especially the Muslim community within the country and and rhetoric, even maybe about some Christian communities in the country? I mean, is there a sense that the Buddhist community, the Tibetan Buddhist community, is different because of a certain sort of closeness with uh, elements of of the Hindu tradition, or, or how does he talk about that uh, that status? So uh, the uh, while I think they he purposely keeps like the Tibetan community aside uh, in these conversations about Indian minorities in the country where they they are polarized or marginalized. Um, Indian Buddhists are are obviously welcome. Uh, who are just you know who might be um, Dalits from uh, Pakistan or wherever they are. But Tibetans also, it's not like they have, uh, you know, the uh, the big citizenship act that was passed. It's not like Tibetans got the right to become citizens um, because they're persecuted in China, right? That was the whole thing that Hindus who are persecuted elsewhere can come and become citizens. Uh, so they have been, they have kept this population sort of isolated as a special category almost, Um and I think it benefits India to some extent uh, geopolitically to do it. Um, there have been leaders in the past um, who have been very, very vociferous about um, supporting the Tibetan movement, who have been like Sadar Patel and people like that, who have been, uh, you know, at the cost of uh, um, a, a confrontation with China. Uh, this uh, government is not of that uh, Makeup and and governments have generally taken a very sort of mute stand when it comes to face off with China. So yeah, yeah. Um, well, maybe we can uh, start to move towards wrapping up by uh, actually just asking you on your next field trip what needs to happen or on the next sort of phase of this research agenda. Obviously, you're going to be wrapping up the book, right? And 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 uh, I'm sure you have enough material for the book uh, at this point. I know that. Um, but uh, I'm sure you're also thinking about what comes next and sort of the next stages beyond the book or kind of the implications of, of this project. So how are you thinking about what comes next, either on your next field visit or as you kind of put together the next stage of your agenda? So uh, one of the things that I want to do as maybe it's alongside the book, but I have uh, in 2020, I uh, went to Balakopi, the Tibetan settlement, and I met with uh, some old uh, veterans, Tibetan soldiers who had fought, who fought in the Indian army. And uh, it was very interesting talking to them because they had fought in the Bangladesh Liberation War of 71. And they had very interesting insights about, um, about the reasons, I mean, not insights, but very important opinions about the reasons for fighting. And they told, told spoke to me about uh, you know, about the nature of the fight of the war and the way in which they got involved in the army. And I think I want to write a couple of chapters uh, on the, or rather a couple of paper articles on um, the Tibetan faction in the Indian army. Um, one particularly looking at, one particularly based on these interviews, 
um, with veterans who fought in the Bangladesh war. And the other one, uh, considering uh, this um, uh, annual prayer ceremony organized by uh, Tibetan soldiers called Marmi Bhumchuk, which is um, a th offering of a thousand lamps, uh, which basically they um, every year they organize it and it's a it's a sort of um sort of a national festival of sorts in many ways where soldiers are doing this but obviously it's religious and they are offering it to uh, the buddha but uh it's it's been something that has been there in the community and i've seen it and um it's something that i want to explore more so those are like sort of two chapters of uh uh, or two articles that I want to write uh, that is separate from my dissertation work and which will become the book. Great, great. Um, well, um, again, thank you so much for for being with us today, for sharing uh, your your visit. Um, it's a it's a situation in the Tibetan status, both within China and within India, that um, I think a lot of Westerners, when we think of um, sort of democracy in Asia, maybe we're vaguely aware of because it's it's been a long-standing situation, but we may not be as aware of the nuances and the changes right in the last um, uh, decade or so, um, and how the story of the Tibetans in the region uh, fits in with these broader stories about um, uh, further closing of, of political space in China and also the the tensions over democracy and rights in India also. Um, so uh, having you put that all uh, together for us is super helpful. Um, and of course, to also kind of put a bow on your time at CAD as a postdoctoral fellow this year, which we were so grateful for. So thanks for uh, for giving us your time. And we'll uh, look forward to hearing from you next time. Thanks a lot, David. It was so great being at CAD. And I'm looking forward to being engaged with the center for the future. And to our listeners, uh, thanks again for being back with us after our academic summer pause. Uh, the Center for Asian Democracies podcast will be back with you on a roughly monthly basis this year. Um, we're also excited to be welcoming Dr. Taha Rauf as our new postdoctoral fellow very soon. Uh, we'll hear from him pretty soon on the podcast and uh, and also in events um, around the U of L campus. Supporting postdocs is a, a, a sort of part of CAD's regular work. And while we're always sad to see them go, um, we're also excited by the chances uh, to, to support new young scholars and, and build on that work. Um, also, keep an eye on CAD's Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram accounts, along with our website through the University of Louisville um, for event announcements. Um, we've recently posted just general save the dates for uh, some speakers in our fall 2023 series. Um, those events will be in person, um, although we will also um live stream and, and make those events available virtually after the fact um so check that out for more information as always subscribe to the inside asia podcast on services like apple podcasts and spotify uh we appreciate your listenership we've been so excited especially uh to see the map of where all our listeners are coming from which uh, which looks a lot like uh, a map of the world including the map of asia um but also across uh parts of uh, of, of europe and of course the united states um, thanks to Tori Dahl for all of her work in producing this podcast, and we'll be back with you before too long.